This audio is brought to you by muslimcentral.com. Assalamu alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Alhamdulillah wa salatu wa salamu ala rasulillah wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa man wala. Brothers and sisters in Islam and all around the world on, on FB Live, Assalamu alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Well, today we arrive at lesson number 29 of the seerah of the Prophet And today we're going to go into a very important event that happened at the time of the Prophet This event, uh, maybe for the younger people, the kids, will not really comprehend or understand it. If they can, alhamdulillah, but I have to address people who are able to comprehend what happened in this particular event. And it is a controversial event among people who want to fight Islam and people who want to say that Islam teaches hate. So, alhamdulillah, I think it's a very important part of the seerah in case anyone has to be subjected or talk to people who use this event to say that Muslims are haters. And in particular, they will use this event to say that Muslims are taught to be anti-Semitic. Anti-Semitic. And anti-Semitic means that when someone is against the Jews because of their race. It has been used a lot in modern times. And I want to clear up this point to show how false their claim is and to kill it and destroy it, inshaAllah ta'ala. And from this event, we're going to learn a few very important matters that concern the Muslims themselves. It's got to do with what we call fiqh, understanding certain principles and practices in, our, uh, in how we practice our deen in our life. A very important subject here. And also about um, relations with non-Muslims here. We have to talk a little bit about it. And honestly, this event is going to test your faith a little bit because there is a harsh reality here that happened and it can be difficult for some Muslims to explain. So, I hope inshallah ta'ala I will give it justice by the will of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So, last week we talked about the last or the ending of the Battle of Khandaq. The Battle of Khandaq means the Battle of the Trench, or it is also called the Battle of Ahzab, when 10,000 soldiers of the Kuffar of Mecca and their allies gathered together for the first time in the last army to annihilate and destroy the Muslims of Medina. Their main goal was, and I need to emphasize this so you can understand this event, their main goal was, kill the Prophet and everyone who is with him. Everyone who is with him. The women, the men who followed him, and their children. Kill them all. Like, they don't even want to take prisoners. Kill them, annihilate them, which means even their children who may carry this religion, maybe some of them would have changed their mind, but they meant annihilate the Muslims and wipe them off the face of the planet. That was the clear goal. Now you might say, well, okay, those are the Kuffar of Mecca, we understand the fight and the battle between them and the Muslims. You know, it's developed over years. What have the Jews got to do with it? Well, let me just recap very quickly. Around Medina, there were three Jewish tribes. The first tribe was Banu Qaynuqa. This tribe did treachery against the Prophet and tried to help the enemy to annihilate the Muslims. The Prophet gave them an option to either um, they gave them an option to leave, actually, and never come back. So they chose to leave, and they went somewhere, and subhanAllah, they became extinct. That was one. The second tribe was called Banu Nadir, or Banu Nadir. Their leader was called Huyay ibn al-Akhtar. I'm going to mention his name a few times, Huyay. He's a very evil man. And what happened to them was that they also played treachery. In fact, they wanted to assassinate. They attempted the assassination of the Prophet ﷺ. More importantly than that, more importantly than that, is that when the Prophet, peace be upon him, entered Medina, 
they signed a pact, a treaty, with their leaders and everybody in them, a pact of peace between the Madani people, the Muslims, and the Jews, the natives. And in that pact, in that treaty, it was very clearly written, and we still have their records till today in all the history books of Muslims. It says in bold, and the Jews shall help and assist the Muslims of Medina if they are attacked, and the Muslims shall help the Jews of the neighboring ones, and he named them, if they are attacked. And in bold it says, neither party shall assist an outside enemy against either the Muslims or against the Jews. And they all signed to it and made an oath upon it. The Jews said, we don't fight on a Sabbath. The Muslims accepted this Sabbath idea. And this treaty was signed and agreed to. Now, when you sign a treaty like that, it was known throughout the world that anybody who assists an enemy is treachery. It is called treason. And it was known, common law, everybody knew this, that once you commit treason, it's, the penalty is death. The penalty is death. If the Muslims committed treason against the Jews, it will be death for them. Because the Jews have now become what we call Dhummi. Dhummi means protected under Islamic law and under the Islamic State. And any form of protection for the Jews would mean that it is jihad. Jihad. No one's ever heard of jihad being a protection of non-Muslims. And if you die in that cause, you're a martyr, a shaheed. People don't talk about that, but that's a form of jihad. Because they are what we call dhummi. Dhummi means under the protection. They're, they've got a treaty together. They're, they're not enemies, they're peace. So, Banu al-Nadir broke that treaty. The Prophet ﷺ laid siege on them for a while. And then, in the end, a man by the name of Abdullah ibn Ubayy ibn Salul, he was a hypocrite. But no one knew that he was a hypocrite. He was a, he was a spy. You know, he just acted like a Muslim. And he said, Ya Rasulullah, Ya Rasulullah, please, they are my allies, they are my friends. For my sake, leave them. Just, just let them leave. And the Prophet ﷺ said, alright, for your sake, I'll let them leave. Even while knowing he's got signs of hypocrisy. But the Prophet ﷺ, he was a mercy to mankind and compassionate and he gave these Muslims their honor as well. He said to them, okay, for your sake, I'll give them the option of leaving. Carry as much as you can on your camels of your wealth and leave. Don't come back because you have now become a threat to us. I can't risk children, women and men here sitting in this city like sitting ducks and all the enemies of the world around us are against us and you're going to help them? I can't. Out. So they left. They left with their leader Huyat and they went to a place called Khaybar and they built a huge fortress. SubhanAllah, they did not stop. They started gathering all the people, the Arabs and Meccans and sending them information, enticing them and inciting them to come and kill Muhammad and his people. And so the Battle of Khandaq started. It was because of them. This Battle of Khandaq laid siege, my brothers and sisters, for about 20 to 25 days. The Muslims were... And we read the verses last week, and their throats, their, their hearts reached their throats from, from the fear that they had. Every single man went and stood at the Khandaq was 3,000 men against 10,000 soldiers, all because of those Jews. And it's not because they are Jews. It's because of their action, their action, not because of who they are. Otherwise, Prophet would not offer them peace treaty when he first entered. He would not say anyone who defends them and protects them under this contract is a shaheed. It's jihad. Shaheed, to protect them. They're like allies. So, like allies. Only they're, they've got a different kind of contract where they protect them. And the, they broke that treaty. Unfortunately, they had to be Jews. That's just coincidental. It doesn't matter if they were Jews or anything. They could have been Christians. They could have been Hindus. They could have been Buddhists. They could have been whatever they are. Atheists, whatever they are. The fact that they were neighbors and they made a treaty, regardless of what religion they followed, they did an action, an act of treason, which meant the killing and death annihilation of an entire people off the face of the planet. It was a real threat, it was real. Now we had one more tribe left, they were called Banu Qurayza, one more Jewish tribe. They happened to be Jews, but these Jews were a little bit more lenient. Their leader was named Ka'ab, 
And he sort of stuck to his word for, until now. So that other guy, Uyari, comes along to Ka'ab and starts to tell him, Hey, listen, you've got 10,000 soldiers coming. You've got more than 14 different tribes. The biggest army's ever come. There are only 3,000 men, approximately. And women and children, they're going to kill Muhammad and, and his followers. Big, bold sentence, brothers and sisters. He's telling him they're going to finally kill Muhammad and all his followers. So they're going to kill him and everybody that's with him in Medina. All civilians, innocent people, lives gone. That's what the Jews wanted that made the Prophet even after the treaty. So they had two chances. The Prophet gave two chances. It was the last resort. Bani Qurayza was still sticking to their word and the Prophet was ready to protect them. Right up to this point, the Muslims did not break anything. But Ka'ab, the leader of Bani Qurayza, first of all refused Uyayi. He said, get out of my face, get out of my face. I am not going to break any treaty with Muhammad. You know what our Torah says, and I'm not going to go against God. This is a religious belief in this, that when they make a treaty with someone or an agreement, they don't break it. It's blasphemous in their religion. And then he kept on going and going, as I said last week, until he convinced Ka'ab, Bani Qurayza, the last remaining Jewish tribe, that was the neighbors of the Muslims, he convinced him to break the treaty and act in treason. My brothers and sisters, we know the whole story. I said it last week. And so now the Bani Qurayza became an enemy to the Prophet and they were giving. They did three things. They broke the treaty. Number two, they gave weapons to Abu Sufyan and the people that were laying siege outside. They gave them weapons. And they tried to go in and attack them. They actually took up arms. One man went in to see who's there. And they were going to go in and attack and kill, you know, whatever's that, women and take the children. But subhanAllah, remember the story of the Prophet's auntie, Sophia, where she went up and threw a rock on one of the men. And then she severed his head. He had, she had to do that to cause fear in their hearts, and that's how what, what war happens. And she threw his head over the fortress, the big fortress these Jews, massive fortresses. Allah says it in the Quran, They will not fight you. He's talking about the, the Jews there. He said they're not going to fight you except through well-guarded fortresses or behind high walls. And subhanAllah, the walls still exist today in Palestine. They, they built the big wall that divides what they call Israel. We don't acknowledge that because it was illegally taken. And they divide the wall is still there. It's like Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala told us through end of time, the extremist Jews, these are extremist Jews, they'll always build walls for some reason and fortresses and high places. You can see in any footage, in any footage, any documentary, the state of the so-called Israelis, the Zionists, the extreme Jews, which are the minority, but they're the ones in power there. They've got their homes and their fortresses up on hills. And the, the Palestinians, the Muslims, Palestinians, Christians and Jews, Christians and Jews, all Palestinians, not just the Muslims, they're living in, you know, among the rats at the bottom. They don't give a damn about them. Along with this wall, it is. It's, it's, you don't need anybody to really sit there and argue. It's just plain and simple. My brothers and sisters in Islam, the Allah SWT said about these Jews that were sitting there, Bani Quraysh, that they had high fortresses. And this woman, Safiya, she had to do that to that man. And they thought that men were guarding, men were guarding Medina. So it was a trick. If it wasn't for that, what Safiya, the old woman, did, those Jews were coming in, Bani Qurayza, to attack the women and take the children, and that's it. And then allow Abu Sufyan and the enemies to come in and annihilate the Muslims. Having said that, my brothers and sisters, I've set the scene for you to know what the circumstances were. So, a trick happened, I told you last week, about that man who embraced Islam, and he caused the Quraysh and the Jews to not trust each other, right? And so everybody sat still. Then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent a huge storm on the people of the kuffar that were standing siege outside and they couldn't handle it anymore. So Abu Sufyan, he got up and he said, let's leave. I'm just cutting the story short. He said, let's leave. We can't handle this. I'm over it. And nearly a month and they left. Now comes the event that I told you about. The Prophet وسلم, he goes inside. And what does he do? He's about to take his armor off. He's about to take his armor 
off. Alhamdulillah, they're almost starved to death. They almost died. They were almost killed. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala saved them and now they're relieved. They want to go drink water. They want to go and eat. They want to relax. They want to rest. They want to get back to their senses. And then suddenly, who comes along? The angel Jibreel He comes to the Prophet sallallahu and says to him, Why have you taken off your armor? We the angels have not yet laid our armor. Go to Bani Quraysa. They have to pay for their treachery. If you leave them, you will never be safe ever again. And Jibreel said in anger, Wallahi, I am going to shake the ground beneath them. It's over. This is the last resort. This hadith is in Bukhari. So the Prophet put his armor back on and he said a very famous word, statement. You should listen to this statement. He said, لا نصلي العصر إلا ببني طريزة It was Asr time and Maghrib was approaching. And he said, we will not pray Asr except in Bani Quraysa. It's a two hour walk. It's a two hour walk. Bit of a distance. And by saying we will not pray Asr except in Bani Quraysa meant that by the time they reach Bani Quraysa, Asr is gone. And what's going to come in? Maghrib. And the way they went there were batches after batches. They didn't go all at once with the Prophet So the Prophet peace be upon him, he went first with a batch and another batch followed. So in, in little sequences. What happened? On the way, the Muslims who were a bit delayed, they didn't know what to do. The sun was about to set and Maghrib was about to approach and they haven't prayed Asr yet. So they got confused. They got confused. And so a difference of opinion happened. You know how we always hear about scholars have difference of opinion about this or difference of opinion about that. Very common. And it's okay. You've got to expect that. The Sahabas had a difference of opinion. One group took the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ literally. We literally will not pray Asr except that even if it's Ishaq time, we're praying it there. Because the Prophet ﷺ said it, therefore it's an exception to the rule in the Quran. Some people might say, I hear these people say that today. Hey, if there's a Quran and a hadith, and the hadith doesn't go with the Quran, we accept the Quran and we negate the hadith. That's not entirely true. Not entirely true. If there's an exception in the words of the Prophet ﷺ, an exception, then we can use it like a concession. For example, Prophet ﷺ used to uh, shorten his prayers when he was on travel. Now that's not mentioned in the Quran. Do we say no, no, we keep it up for all the scholars unanimously agree. All the former Dhabs of Islam also agree that we shorten the prayers on travel. They just disagree on whether you can combine them together. So my brothers and sisters, not in all cases. The Prophet ﷺ said, we will not pray the Asr except then. Some group said, we will literally wait until we reach Bani Quraysa and pray there. So they did that. Another group differed. They said, no, no, no. You've got to look at the meaning behind what he said. What he meant was, obviously, we have to hurry up. Because Jibreel said, I have not put my armor down. Go to Bani Quraysa without any delay and be quick. So he said, we'll only pray Asr of Bani Quraysa, meaning get there very quickly. So that you can make it there by Asr and pray there. So be quickly. And so they said, since we're not quick enough, therefore... We'll pray it now, because we don't want to go against the Qur'an, you know, we have to pray it here, Asr. That's what he meant, you know, they took it as, like, as if the meaning behind what he said. The point is, a group was literal, a group took it by the general meaning. Hurry up, it's just, he, he meant hurry up. Which one's right, and which one's wrong? Can they be both right? No. No. You can't have two right ones. It's impossible. It's impossible to have two truths that are contradicting. Put that in your head. Common rule. No scholar differs on this. You can never have two rights 
and they're contradicting. Impossible. Either one's right, one's wrong. So what do we do? Well, let's see what happened. When they reached the Prophet ﷺ in Bani Quraiza, they told him what had happened to them. Ya Rasulullah, a group of us prayed on time and a group of us left it and the Asr passed. And we know the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ, Man al-Asr Whoever leaves Asr out, all of his actions of the day, good actions, are cancelled. It's pretty serious. Pretty serious. So what are they going to do? They're very cautious. What did the Prophet ﷺ answer? Wallahi, he did not say who was right and who was wrong. Did he know who was right and who was wrong? Yes, of course he knew who was right and who was wrong. But did he tell them who was right and who was wrong? No, he didn't. Very interesting. Very interesting. This is a topic which the scholars since that time till today always <laughs> talk about. And they deduce rulings and they have differences of opinion on them. So I'm not here to come and tell you who was right and who was wrong. I cannot tell you at all. The scholars have always debated it. But what I can tell you is this. When Allah says the Prophet ﷺ sent as a mercy to mankind, when it comes to matters of understanding practices of the religion that do not harm the Ummah and, do, and are not clearly contradicting to Islam, then if the scholars differ on it, then no one can impose their scholar's opinion on the followers of another scholar. So long as both of them have a dalil and evidence. He said in another hadith, you both targeted asabtum. You both targeted the goal. You both targeted the goal. What is the goal? The goal is, number one, to be sincere. You are both sincere. Is that enough? No, it's not enough to be sincere. You've got to do a bit more than that. You're both sincere. You really wanted to do the right thing. So that's the first condition. That's the first goal. You both wanted to do the right thing, and that's your intention. So, that's number one. Number two, you both tried your best to use whatever information you know, knowledge you have, to come to the right decision. You both did that. You both used very strong analytical evidence that you knew within your capacity. That's number two. And number three, you both each did what you would be comfortable to meet Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala with an answer to you. Those are the three conditions. Now, which one was right and wrong is irrelevant anymore. Because it's not an aqidah issue. It's not an issue of belief in God. It's an issue of, should we pray here or there? You know, when someone comes in and says, you should have your legs out in prayer this wide or this wide. Subhanallah, touch the foot or don't touch the foot with the person next to you. There's no need to make a big hullabaloo about it. Khalas, you have more information and evidence, alhamdulillah, you're comfortable with it, go with it. There's no need to impose it on other people, right? Well, you place your hand here or I place my hand there. Who cares? Each one has their evidence. You think you're on alhamdulillah, let's not impose it upon other people. Honestly, wallah. These are fiqh, fiqh matters. Fiqh, how to practice it. There'll always be a difference of opinion. And to add to that, the Prophet ﷺ said in the Sahih Hadith, this is unanimously agreed upon, a alim, a scholar, a scholar, a alim. So long as he's qualified, of course. You can't get lame people talking and making fatwas. A scholar has to be qualified. If he or she makes a fatwa, a conclusion, a deduction, a right? If he makes an educational guess and he gets it right, he has to double the reward. If he makes a mistake, he still has one reward for trying. Hadith is Sahih. A scholar, if he makes a fatwa and gets it right, he gets double the reward. If he gets it wrong, he still gets one reward for trying. said, The scholars are the inheritors of the prophets. So we have matters in our time that we differ in opinions among the great scholars who are qualified and legitimate, and there will remain differences there. <coughs> we do not make these an issue. Ever heard of Muhammad al-Fatih? Muhammad al-Fatih, the Sultan. In the time of the Ottomans, the Ottoman Empire, Muhammad al-Fatih. And tell me you don't know Muhammad al-Fatih, so come on. It's a very famous one, the year 1458, he took over is the one that conquered Constantinople, which is now called Istanbul, in the time of the Ottomans, right? And the Christian, Roman, that was their headquarters, right? 
the Romans, who always wanted to fight the Muslims and stuff. Well, they took it over. And when he took it over, he took it over while their priests, the priests that were, the Roman priests that were in, in Constantinople, Istanbul now, they were too busy, listen carefully, they were too busy debating, the priests, they were too busy debating whether we, angels have wings or don't have wings. That sounds familiar to us as Muslims today. We differ and argue about little silly matters. Well, the, matters that we, we, make, we make into a silly thing. And then differ and make it into groups and sects. He conquered them when they were doing that. And subhanAllah, look how now it's reversed. We are doing the same thing. We conquered them when they differed upon little rulings like this which don't make any difference. And now, we don't want to be the people who debate on little issues that don't make a difference while the enemy comes and consumes us. And that's exactly what's happening now. Exactly. Now the world has changed. My brothers and sisters in Islam, differing matters where you have evidence from scholars that are reputable, not from lay people. The problem is when people go on social media and everybody starts to cut and paste stuff and just throws it, thinking they know it all. And really, honestly, you've got to be really careful, brothers and sisters, I can't emphasize this, that you've got to really check your ego here, sisters or brothers. Are you doing this because you've got a zealous thing to a group that you follow? Is this, are we a bikey gang? Yeah. What is this? Are you doing this just because now everybody's watching and you want to prove yourself right? You can't back down now? Is this like a, a UFC fight now? You can't back down? The whole world is watching? Imagine that you are dying. You're going to die tomorrow. You know that you're going to die. Will you be doing that stuff or will you be thinking, I'm going to meet Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tomorrow, man? As the Prophet said, I think it was him or was it the Sahabas? Anyway, the person who is more courageous to give a fatwa out of ignorance is the one more courageous to throw themselves in hellfire. And the Sahabas used to avoid giving fatwas. You would go to one Sahabi, ask him a question, you'd say, Ask so and so. And the other one said, ask so-and-so. And then the third person would say, ask so-and-so. And would go around a whole circle until he returns back to the same person that was asked. And he would hit his head and say, la hawla wa la quwwata illa billah, as if someone died. And the Sahabi would say, why me? I have to now answer to Allah if I get it wrong. They were very scared to give fatwas about things that they didn't really, they didn't have enough information, it wasn't solidified. I mean, you can tell someone alcohol is haram. You're not making a fatwa, it's in the Quran already. I'm talking about matters of disagreement. We turn it into a big thing. I don't want to keep rambling on, but you know, you catch the drift. Be very careful with these things, my brothers and sisters in Islam. Yani, the Sahada, the, the madhabs in one time, the schools of thought, reached a point where their followers, their followers, their students, it's, this, it's always the followers who make trouble, not the scholars. They started having four jama'as around the Kaaba, four behind, behind four different imams, not allowed to pray behind him because this imam follows the Hanafi mother. This one follows the Hanbali mother. This one follows Malik and other. They're out of the fold of Islam. The scholars got together and said, what's this madness? What is this madness? Do not dispute among each other and you will fail. So Prophet looked at this circumstance in Bani Quraiza and he could have told them who was right and who was wrong. But he didn't. He knew that this, he weighed out. What is the lesser of the two you know, bad situations, keep the Muslims united and allow them that, allow them that freedom that if they get in the future, like what we're in today, where there are differences of opinion on fiqh matters that don't affect your aqidah or your entrance of hellfire or, or jannah, then it's okay. Follow what you sincerely believe is right, the evidence makes sense, you have a qualified scholar behind you, and you'll meet Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And there is no perfect Muslim. None of us here is on 100% perfection. No, no one. So my brothers and sisters in Islam, let's take it easy on that. Okay? Sometimes, I'll give you a couple of examples of, of disagreements today which uh, have caused an uproar and uh, too much judgmentality and disunity. One of them, for example, is the hijab of women. Some say, uh, you know, it's a fault to wear the niqab. Others, they say, no, it's not fault. And both of them have reputable scholars behind them very strong, reputable scholars which we cannot argue with. If they face me now, I'll put my head down and say, you're right. You're right. You can't argue with them. And they both have very strong dalil. These people are experts and masters of it. And I do not dare to question either of them. However, I hold an opinion from one group of scholars which I'm convinced with and their dalil seems strong for me. 
for me. And I'm not going to tell you what it is, because then you're going to look at me and think, well, if he believes that, I'll believe the same. Because I'm not here to cause... But the difference of opinion is there. Here's the thing. The ones who believe niqab is fard, and the ones who don't believe niqab is fard, neither of them has the right to impose upon the other and judge the other as being away from the deen, or less modest, or to look at them in a funny way. At all. This is haram, ya my brothers and sisters. So, another disagreement is, for example, a woman traveling without a mahram. We know that there are hadiths, that the Muslim woman should not travel without a mahram in the day or the night. But there are also other hadiths of Prophet saying that there will come a time where there will be so much safety that, you know, with the khilafah, that a woman will travel alone from Medina to, I don't know what place, alone in the middle of the desert at night, and nothing will harm her. Traveling. And the ulama came behind this and some said, well, you know, the meaning of this travel is that if she can ensure her safety to travel, like what we have, for example, sometimes today, they say she can go to the airport with the mahram, and there is someone to take her, there's someone to receive her on the other side, that's fine. And then they have the other scholars who are literal on it, saying, no, no, absolutely not. Again, I say to you, take it easy. It's not a matter of, of, of hellfire or jannah in this. There's a difference of opinion among the scholars. Each one has reputable that is, man. Do not impose it upon the other or look down upon the other person. And I'm not going to tell you the opinion I follow because I'm not here to cause disunity. But I do hold one view. Now, subhanAllah, this is the point. So we move on. That's the issue with Bani Quraysa, I thought it was an important point. Secondly, when the Prophet ﷺ arrived to Bani Quraysa, what did he do? He said, Ya Ali, Ali Radalam is his cousin, go and take this flag. And, and, and put it outside of the fortress of Bani Qurayza. That meant we are at war. And the Muslims laid siege outside of the fortress for approximately 25 days. Just sitting there. The Prophet ﷺ, he said to, uh, before he got there, he said to his companions, who has beaten me there? Can someone tell me if anyone's at the fortress before I get there? And they said, Ya Rasulullah, we didn't see anyone except Dihya, Dihya al-Kalbi. Dihya al-Kalbi was a Sahabi who lived in Medina. He was very tall and very handsome, very good looking, that he stood out. Everybody knew him. They go, we saw Dihya al-Kalbi on his mule riding around. <laughs> and the Prophet ﷺ said to them, that's Jibreel. That's Jibreel alayhi salam. Remember what we said? When Jibreel used to come, sometimes he used to impersonate Dihya al-Kalbi, the handsome man. And that was actually Jibreel alayhi salam. He sometimes used to come in the form of Dihya al-Kalbi. And remember, the Prophet said, that's Jibreel alayhi salam. He's gone and beaten us there. He's going to shake the earth beneath him. Now, when Ali al-Dalanu put the flag down, he heard the Jews behind the fortress swearing the most vulgar words about the Prophet We can't say what these words are, they're just so vulgar. And then Ali Dalan raced to the Prophet pay attention to this subhanAllah, the adab and the manners. He said to him, Ya Rasulullah, there's no need for you to go any further, just sit here, we'll, we'll camp you here and build you a tent, just stay here. Why did he say that? Because he doesn't want the Prophet to hear these hurtful words. Now the Prophet is much smarter and more intelligent than that. You think he doesn't work it out? He said, Why ya Ali? Have they, are they saying something hurtful to me? Are they swearing at me? He said, Yes, Ya Rasulullah. I don't want you to hear that. And he said, Ya Ali, Wallahi, as soon as they see me and they know that I'm there, they will not dare to say a word. They will only respect me. They have to. Behind my back, they'll backbite. We already know that. But when they see me, they won't dare to say a word. And that's subhanAllah between us as well as a community. It's strange. Some of us, we may backbite someone when he's not around. But if they were to face us, you become like a mouse. And you should become like a mouse. Because the one you're going to face is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And you'll be like a mouse in front of him. So you better fix yourself. This tongue. And these... I, I shouldn't say tongue. I think now we should say fingers. Because we type more than what we speak now. The good old days. I wish we did speak. Brothers and sisters in Islam, now, the Jews knew about this. So they gathered each other and the Ka'ab, the, 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 the leader, says to them, Okay, let me get your advice, guys. What are we going to do? 
We have three options, his leader, their leader. He said, option number one. We all know, he said to insist to them, Wallah, he said, we all know as Jews that he is the one. Who's the one? Muhammad He's the prophet that is described in our Torah. No doubt about it. But you know, he has to be from the Arabs, that's why we're against him. It's more of a racial thing. We know he is the one. And if we embrace Islam and convert and become Muslims, and we all know we're doing the right thing, that's an option. So they got together and said, Wallahi, we will never give up our religion, even if he is the right one. It's a racial thing. So then he said, okay, option number two. Let us kill our family. We'll kill our women and children so that we don't have to worry about them anymore. On our hands is better than on his hands. And we'll go out, carry our swords, and we'll fight to death. If we, whoever of us is safe, we're safe. And make it, whoever makes it, makes it. Whoever doesn't, I mean, it's, it's one to two. Like, the, the, the Jews were double the amount of the Muslims. So, you know, we have a chance to win. I'm sorry, the Muslims were double their amount. So one in two, we have a chance to win. And they said, kill our own children? Kill our own women? No, 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 we can't do that. And a suicide mission? He's telling us to do a suicide mission? No, we won't do that. Okay, he said, what about option number three? We'll do a surprise attack. Tomorrow is Sabbath. It was on a Friday night, Friday morning. He said, tomorrow is a Saturday. They know we don't fight on a Sabbath. We'll do a surprise attack. This was about the 24th night or the 23rd, so really close to the siege ending. And they don't expect us to fight on the Sabbath, so they'll lay their arms down and do a surprise attack. Maybe we have a chance there. And they said, no way. Sabbath? The Torah says we don't fight on the Sabbath. We're not going to lay hands. We're not going to fight on the Sabbath. Go against our religion? No. So then he got angry at them, Ka'ab, and he said, Wallahi, you people are so sad. Since the day I was born, I've never witnessed you ever agree on one thing. And it's true. The Jews don't actually unanimously agree on one thing, really. Allah says, You think that they are all together? But among each other, their hearts are divided. But you know what? I'll tell you something. Today in the modern world, at least when it's something that benefits all of them against the common enemy, the world, or whoever it is, they have one representative now. Well, generally speaking, you've got the Zionists and you've got the other ones. But basically, they get together to protect their fortress. What about what? Us, the Muslims. Anyway, so what happened was they went out to the Prophet ﷺ, the Kaab, and he said, listen, they got a representative and they said, Ya Rasulullah, we plead to you, please, 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 Ya Muhammad, we, we will surrender our homes and our cattle and everything, but just let us go like the way you let go our cousins, Banu Malik. The Prophet ﷺ said, no, it has to be an unconditional surrender. Don't make conditions on me. Surrender first and then I'll decide. He hadn't said what he's going to do. No one knows what the Prophet was going to do. So he went back in, his representative, and they said, send, send someone that we have an agreement with, that we like. So the Prophet said, alright, I'll send you Abu Lubaba. Abu Lubaba is one of the Sahabas, the Ansars. He's from the people of Aws. And Aws, remember Aws and Khazraj, he, he had a good relationship with the Jews. They've got like years and years of friendship. He was an ally to them. Some say he was a Jew who converted to Islam. His name is Abu Lubaba, a very famous Sahabi, very honorable, very reputable, amazing Sahabi who fought in Badr and Uhud and now. Now Abu Lubaba has a soft spot for the Banu Quraizah. So he goes, Ya Rasulullah, let me go and talk to them. So Prophet said, alright, you go inside and ask them if they will surrender or what. So he went inside and he spoke to them. And he said, and, and what happened was that they gathered their children and their women and they started sitting on the floor and crying and wailing. But they, they think they're going to... Yeah, it's death, basically. And they, and they came to him as if he's their saviour. And when he saw this sight in front of him, he got a soft spot. He felt sorry for them. It's not an easy thing. You know, he's a human being watching his children and everything. It's a very, very tough situation. Now, Abu Lubaba started remembering their friendship and stuff and kind of got, got very sorry for them. And then he said to them, you should surrender. You should surrender. But then he did this. But he did this with his finger. You're going to get slaughtered. He's going to kill you. Abu Lubaba said, as soon as I did that, I couldn't feel my legs. I realized 
that I had just betrayed the prophets of Allah. I just did an act of treason. Because, oh my God, I don't know if I'm a Muslim anymore, a kafir. I just, I just betrayed the messenger of God. He goes, Wallahi, I didn't say a single word. I didn't even go back to the Prophet. I was too embarrassed. I couldn't go. I got out and I ran away and I went to Masjid, the Prophet's mosque. And I tied myself on one of its pillars. That pillar is called the Pillar of Tawbah. Till today, whoever visits Medina, you can ask the scholars and people there, they'll tell you where the Pillar of Tawbah is. It's still there till today. It's called the Pillar of Tawbah, the Pillar of Repentance. Abu Lubaba goes and ties himself on that pillar. And he says, Wallahi, I swear an oath by Allah, I will not untie myself until Allah sends a verse saying that He's forgiven me. He wants a verse in the Quran. So he will stay on the pillar until he starts to death if the ayah in the Quran doesn't come and say that he is forgiven. He was scared. The news got to the Prophet and the Prophet got saddened. He said, you know, in, in that sort of phrase, I don't know if he said exactly that, but that's what he sort of said, something that means that. He said, I wish that Abu Lubaba would have just come straight to me and I would have asked Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to forgive him, it would be done. Khalas. He made a mistake. But now he's made an oath. So now it's between him and God. When you make an oath, khalas, Prophet has no say. He goes, I've got no say anymore. SubhanAllah. See, we don't have this idea of, uh, of, of, of using human beings as, you know, they can do something God can do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can go to the Prophet and intercede like when he was alive. You say, Ya Rasulullah, please ask Allah for me and stuff like that. Yeah, it can happen. And that's what he said Abu Lubaba should have done. But the fact that Abu Lubaba had already made the oath, then that's it. The Prophet has no say in him. He said, now we're just going to have to wait for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to release him. Make sense? And subhanAllah, he stayed for about a week, tied up. And Allah did send the verse of the Qur'an. And this verse is in Surah At-Tawbah, most likely, in verse 102. Allah said, which means Allah says he praises the companions and then he says and there are others there are others who admit their sins and they mix good deeds with bad deeds in their life. There was, sometimes they're doing good, sometimes they're doing bad, but they admit their faults to Allah. Perhaps Allah will forgive them. Allah is forgiving and most merciful. Hassan al-Basri and other scholars of the past said, there, we don't know of any more hopeful verses than this one. It's the most relieving verse that any mu'min can read. And there are others, he says, who admit their sins. And when they, in their lives, they mix good deeds with bad deeds. They're doing sins and they're doing good. Allah says, perhaps Allah will forgive them. And when Allah says, perhaps, it means He will forgive them. So, brothers and sisters, this is a good hope for those of us who do sins and, and we think that there's no hope for us. Admit your sin to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala forgives you all the time. Don't make life hard on yourself. And so... When this verse came down, the Prophet ﷺ, his wife was with him, her name was Umm Salama, remember? And hijab hadn't been commanded yet. So Umm Salama, she wasn't wearing hijab, and she said, Ya Rasulullah, she saw him smiling. She says, what are you smiling about? He says, I'm so happy. Allah has released Abu Lubab. He has forgiven him. So she said, Rasulullah, can I go and tell him? I want to go and tell him the good news. You see that and when we talk about women and men, Women are allowed to congratulate men. Women and men are allowed to feel happy for their sisters, you know. And she wants to go and tell Abu Lubaba herself. Right? Ya Abu Lubaba, Allah sent the verse. And this is the meaning of brother and sister. There's respect between each other, within boundaries. And Prophet said to her, go. You want to do it? Go. She left the house and went to the pillar. Said, Ya Abu Lubaba, abshir. Have good news since the day your mother gave birth to you. Allah has released you. 
And all the other companions started coming along and he said, Yeah, and he said, Abu Rabba said, No, I'm not going to release myself until Muhammad himself, the Prophet comes and he unties it. Go, I want to be sure that it's me. I want to be sure. I'm not going to take all your words for it. I want to be sure that I'm safe from the fire. And they said, Ya Rasulullah is not going until you come along. So the Prophet went himself and he untied them with his own hands, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, for Abu Rabba to feel relieved. Back with Banu Quraiza. The next day, the Jews surrendered. They came out, and the Aus, the, 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 the uh, you know, one side of the Ansar of Medina, they had good relations with Banu Quraiza. So they said, Oh, Messenger of Allah, please let them go. Please have mercy on them. Do with them like what you did to the Banu Nadir. Let them go, and they can go and banish themselves and do whatever they want. And the Prophet looks at his Sahabas. He could have told them, Don't get involved with my decision. I have to decide. He could have told them. He could have told them, stop arguing with me. Stop making life hard on your messenger. You are, you are abusing your messenger. You are emotionally abusing me. You are trying to argue. Wallah, he did not say anything like that. What did the Prophet ﷺ do? He said to them, okay, listen. Will you be pleased if I choose one of your chieftains, your own people, and I'll give him the authority to decide what will happen to them. They said, yes, Ya Rasulullah, yes, we agree, we agree, we agree. He said, I choose Sa'ad ibn Mu'adh, radiallahu anhu. Sa'ad ibn Mu'adh, remember his story last week? He was at the Khandaq, and he got speared here. And his wound wouldn't heal. And he knew at this point he was going to die. So he made a dua. He said, Ya Allah, if there is going to be another battle between the Muslims and the Kuffar of Mecca, please leave me alive. Keep me alive so I may witness that battle. And if there is no, if you have decreed that there will be no more battle between the Muslims and the Meccan Kuffar, then take me to you. And truly, after the battle of the Khandaq, there was no more battle between the Muslims and the Kuffar of Mecca until the day the Muslims entered Mecca and they surrendered it to them. La ilaha illallah. And Sa'ad ibn Mu'ad died the next day. But before he died, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had a mission for him. He has to decide what will happen to Bani Quraysa. They're friends, they're allies, they're family, almost. So they brought Sa'ad ibn Mu'ad, and look, there was a woman there who was nursing him. Her name was Rufayda. And there's a hospital now in, in Kuwait, it's named after her. She's the first woman to establish the system of nurses. Did you know that? She was a Sahabiya who initiated the system of nurses. You know when they go and study and become a nurse? She did it. She did it. And she was nursing for the sake of Allah, Sa'ad ibn Mu'adh. His, his wound wasn't healing, still bleeding. So they took him on a stretcher or whatever, on a mule, and they took him to the Prophet Now listen to what he said. On the way, his people said, Oh Master, oh Sayyid, you know, Sa'ad ibn Mu'ayyad, please, you know, the Prophet didn't choose you except that he knew that you're going to be merciful with them. You're going to say something good. Let them go, let them go. Sa'ad ibn Mu'ayyad looked at them and he thought, I'm going to die and I'm going to meet Allah. So then he said, Ana li Sa'din, Ana li Sa'din. It has come time for Sa'ad to speak in a way that he does not fear the blame of any blame. Hmm. That's when a group of his people thought, that's not good. <laughs> that means bad news. He's going to say what needs to be said. You know, people when they're dying, they like to leave a legacy behind them. I want to be known for the glory of my people. I did this or I did that. Sa'ad ibn Mu'ad, the sincere mu'min, says, I'm going to meet Allah tomorrow, maybe. And I have to answer to him. I will say a word where I don't care what people, what people say. Let them blame me forever. I will say the truth. What a beautiful phrase that is. Very powerful, very strong. When he arrived, the Prophet ﷺ said to all his people, Stand up to your master, your leader. And they all stood up in his honor. 
I know, some of you are saying, hold on, isn't it haram to stand up for people? And I don't know what, this is another difference of opinion. I'll just address it very quickly. Yes, the Prophet said, Man whoever loves that people stand up for him in glorification, then let him declare himself in hellfire. These are people who love to boast and like that people stand up for them in veneration, as if they're kings. But if, you, if people stand up for you out of respect, that's fine. So long as you're not a person who loves it. And if they do it from time to time, that's fine. I mean, the Prophet used to stand up to funerals of Jews. There were people, and here he's saying, stand up to your master. You stand up to your parents to go and kiss them. You stand up for a person you haven't seen in a long time and you hug them. There's nothing wrong with that. But to make it a habit that a certain person has to be stood up to all the time and they love it for themselves is a form of pride. So the Prophet said to him, he said to them, stand up for your master, and they all did. And the Prophet Sa'ad said, Wallahi, to all his people, by Allah, you have to swear by Allah. Will you obey my decision no matter what I say? And all of his people said, Yes, yes, Sa'ad, we will obey your decision. And then the Prophet and then Sa'ad did something amazing. He turned to the Prophet and lowered his head. He wouldn't look at the Prophet's eyes. And he said, Wa ya Rasulullah. And you too, Ya Rasulullah, you accept? And the Prophet said, I too, Ya Sa'ad. I don't know which one is more amazing. Sa'ad with an understanding for the truth, even with the Prophet in front of him, lowering his head in humbleness, or the Prophet humbling himself as the leader. He's saying, Yes, Ya Sa'ad, I will even follow your decision. Why? The Prophet doesn't want to disunite his people. And he gives them the choice in the decision. So Sa'ad stands up and he says, The men to be executed, their property to be distributed among the Muslims, and the, and the women and children be their captives. That's it. Bang. Black and white. They're meant to be executed, the men, the adults, their, their property to be distributed, and their men and children to be the captives. The Prophet ﷺ said, Allahu Akbar, Wallahi ya Sa'ad, you have made the same judgment that has already been decreed by Allah from above seven heavens. Allah had already decreed this and He made it come upon your tongue. This was the decree of Allah. Brothers and sisters, the Jews had done treacherous acts here and they deserved the death penalty. So they brought them. Huyay ibn al-Akhtar, the leader of the other Jewish tribe, he was brought. And he looked at the Prophet and he said to him, Wallahi, I hate you. And I am your enemy even till death. And he started saying some vulgar words. And then he turned to the Jews and saying, Don't worry, so what if you die? Die on your faith. So he lowered his head and they severed it quickly. Then came Ka'b, who was the leader of Bani Qurayza. He's got a bit of a soft heart. He comes up to the Prophet and the Prophet says to him, Ya Ka'b, don't you remember your rabbi a few years back? He told you, I am the messenger of Allah. And you were convinced by it. Convert to Islam. Save yourself. And he said, I swear by Allah, Ya Abul Qasim. Wallahi, Ya Abul Qasim. You respect the Prophet it is true that my scholar, the rabbi, told me you are the truth, messenger of God. And he did tell me to follow you. But I feared now that people will say that I converted to Islam because I'm afraid of death. I don't want that legacy for myself. I'm not a coward. So I choose to die on my belief. There you go. There you go. This is the an arrogance at its best. When you know the truth and you refuse to take it. Almost similar to Abu Talib, but this one's even worse. I mean, this is, this is bad. I mean, Abu Talib was nothing, obviously. He, he died protecting the Prophet This guy died as an enemy. There was another woman who had killed one of the Sahabas because he said, we're not going to spare the women. But this woman was also executed. Why? She was making... Aisha uh, says, I saw this woman, Jewish woman, sitting there. She was doing hysterical jokes. She was laughing hysterically while the people were being killed. And, I, and then suddenly she was called. And I said, why is she getting called? And she looked at Aisha and said, I'm going to death. So she had gone into a state of, uh, she went mad. Why? She said, I did something. I killed one of your men. She murdered someone, so she had to pay for that penalty.
Then there was another guy by the name of Zubayr. He was a Jew. And uh, there was a Sahabi by the name of Sabit Thabit ibn Qais. He, Thabit ibn Qais had been saved. His life was saved by, by Zubayr, one of these Jews, one, a long time ago. And he wanted to repay him that favor. And if there were Muslims who wanted to repay the favor of these Jews, they would come to the Prophet and say, Ya Rasulullah, I owe him a favor, let him go. I owe him a favor, let him go. So the Prophet started letting some of them go out of favor for, returning the favor for his Sahabas. So Thabit ibn Qais was one of them. He comes up to this guy, Zubayr, and he says to him, Listen, you saved my life one time. And this guy, Zubayr, was very old, like he was over 80 years old. And he said to him, um, with all due respects to those who are 80 years old here, okay, you are still very young, okay, I take my word back. Don't meet me outside and bash me or something. <laughs> so my brothers and sisters, the Zubayr, uh, this Jewish man, he said, yeah, yeah, if you can save me, save me. Why should I die? So Thabit goes to the Prophet says, Ya Rasulullah, I want to return the favor. And the Prophet said to him, he's yours. So he comes up to Zubayr, and Zubayr goes to Thabit, what's life without your own family? So he goes to the Prophet and the Prophet said, alright, and his family can go with him. So he comes back and he goes, what's life without wealth? So he goes, alright, you can go and take his wealth as well. So then he comes back and he goes, hmm, what's life without your friends and your tribe? <coughs> Prophet said, no, you've gone too far. Away. So Zubayr goes, I choose death. I want to die with my people. I'm over 80 years old. What have I got? A couple of days to live. A few months. Again, sorry brothers. Older ones. Yeah, I'm just being, I've got what? A few years. Allah Alam. So then, he goes, I choose to die with my people. So Zubayr chose that. The Prophet was going to release him, but he chose that. There were a few others that were saved. And uh, some converted to Islam sincerely. And they were spared, of course. Um, and this is what happened on that day. All of their men were executed. The Muslims took about 1,700 swords and shields, 2,000 uh, spears, 300 body armor, sheep and goats. These weapons would last them from generation to generation. So big, big um, spoils of war over here. As for the alcohol, they destroyed it. And a fifth of it went to the Islamic State to help the Muslims. Now there was a woman among the Jews, her name was Rayhan. And the Prophet ﷺ, she became his right-hand possession. Mulk al-Yamin. So in modern-day terms, you can call it slave. But we didn't call them slave. The Quran doesn't call them slaves. He calls them right-hand possession. And the right hand in Arabic is a metaphor for goodness. When you say the left hand, it means evil. When you say right hand, it means generosity. So the, the people who were taken from war were not called slaves in Islam. They were called Mulk al-Yamin, right-hand possession which means that goodness. You've got to treat them well like your own family and not mistreat them so that they don't become public property. So she was the milk al-yameen of the Prophet ﷺ. The Prophet ﷺ told her, I offer you Islam. And she said, no, I don't want to become a Muslim. So the Prophet ﷺ said, all right, then I'm not going to keep you. I'm going to give you to someone else. I don't like to keep any right in possession who are not Muslims. But then she said, no, no, no. I want to stay with you. I don't want to be given up to anyone else. Let me think about Islam. So Prophet ﷺ gave her time and she chose in the end to become a Muslim. It shows you that the Prophet ﷺ is so kind and so compassionate, she refuses to leave him anyway. And then he offered her to marry him. Free her and marry him. But she chose, she would rather stay a servant, a right hand position. And she said to him, Ya Rasulullah, it's better for me that way and better for you. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala only knows best. Some historians say that she did marry him, Allahu A'la. But the point is, she was looked after with compassion and she made that choice herself. So my brothers and sisters in Islam, this is the case of uh, Bani Quraiza. I want to make a few points. If anyone is going to say that Islam teaches anti-Semitism, Semitism, astaghfirullah we don't have this in Islam, then I'm going to present to you a few hadiths of the Prophet that the Prophet ﷺ married a Jewish woman. The Prophet ﷺ married a Jewish woman. Her name was Safiya. And Hafsa, his, her co-wife, she once teased her. She said to her, What are you? You're the son of a Jew. Racial, racist, racist comment. 
And when the Prophet ﷺ came back, he saw his wife, the, the Jewish, the one who was a Jew, her name was, was, was Sophia, as I told you. She was crying. So the Prophet ﷺ said to her, what makes you cry, O Sophia? She said, Hafsa said to me, you know, you are the daughter of a Jew in a, in a, in a mean way. So the Prophet ﷺ said this to her. So, Hafsa, you are the daughter of a Prophet. You are the, your uncle was a prophet, and you are married to a prophet. Her father was a prophet, Ibrahim Your uncle, Ishaq, uh, Ismail is the brother of Isaac. He's a prophet, he's your uncle. And you married a prophet. <coughs> Don't worry about what she said. And then he went, he went to, uh, and he said, so what's, what's uh, Hafsa boasting about? So he went to Hafsa and said to her, fear Allah, ya Hafsa. This is a Jewish woman. And another incident, there was a Jewish funeral passing by. <coughs> and the Prophet ﷺ stood up to this funeral. This hadith is in Sahih Muslim. Book 4, Hadith 2098. It says, they were told that it was a funeral of one of the people of the land of the non-Muslims. They said that the funeral passed before the Prophet ﷺ and he stood up. He was told that he, the dead man, was a Jew. Upon this, the Prophet ﷺ said, Was he not a human being? Or did he not have a soul? So, it's not anti-Semitism. The Prophet ﷺ and his companions stood up for the funeral of a Jew until it disappeared in Sunan Nisa. In Sahih Bukhari, a funeral passed by and the Prophet ﷺ stood up and, he, and they said, We stood up with him and we said, O Messenger of Allah, this is the funeral procession of a Jew. And he said, whenever you see a funeral procession, you should stand up. The Prophet ﷺ greeted Jews and Muslims together one time. He saw Muslims and Jews sitting together and he said, Assalamu alaikum, the greeting of the Muslims, knowing that there's Jews there. For some people who say, you can't say Assalamu alaikum to non-Muslims. And this hadith is in Jama'at Tirmidhi. Ibn Abbas عنه, says, in Adab al-Mufrad, which is the Explanation of Sahih al-Bukhari. He said, Ibn Abbas said, Return the greeting to whomever it is. Jew, Christian, or Magan. Magan were fire worshippers. Say, say, salam alaykum, say, wa alaykum salam. That is because Allah says, When you are greeted with a greeting, greet with one better than it, or return it. Isn't that in the Quran? In Sahih al-Bukhari, narrated by Aisha, the wife of the Prophet, she said, A group of Jews entered upon the Prophet and said, Assalamu alaykum. Death upon you, Sam. They cut out the lamb, so it sounds like a Sam, which means death. And it sounds like a Salam, peace. The Prophet ﷺ knew what they said. So Aisha said, I understood it, and I said to them, Wa alaykum a Sam. May death be upon you, and may Allah's curse be upon you. And the Prophet ﷺ said, Be calm, ya Aisha. Allah loves that one should be kind and lenient in all matters. I said, Oh Allah's Messenger, haven't you heard what they, the Jews, have said? Allah's Messenger said, I have already told them, وَعَلَيْكُمْ and upon you. So if they meant good, I said good back. If they meant bad, I just say, return the word back to them. This hadith in Sahih Bukhari, volume 8, book 53, hadith number 83. And there are many, 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 many hadiths about how the Prophet ﷺ invited us to have peace with non-Muslim Jews, Christian, whatever they may be. And for the past 1,400 years of Muslims, reaching out all the way to China, guys. Nearly a, more than a quarter of the world. No synagogue was ever destroyed. No church was ever destroyed. You go to Palestine, you find the Jews have their synagogues. The Christians have their churches. They work together. You have Spain and Andalus, a big history about that. Jews and Muslims lived together for a very long time in peace and harmony. So what is anti-Semitism? My brothers and sisters in Islam, Islam does not have racism. We don't have culturalism. We don't have nationalism. We don't have colorism, we don't have any ism or sectarianism. We don't have any of that, my brothers and sisters in Islam. The truth or the false, stand by the truth, or you are standing by the false. And lastly I say, judge the man by the truth. Judge the man by the truth. Or the man is known by the truth. Not the other way around. The truth is not known by the man. Don't judge the truth by the man. Don't judge the truth by the shaykh that you love. 
Don't judge the truth by someone who you think has the lineage of the Prophet Some people say, oh, he's got the blood of the Prophet He goes all the way to the family tree of the Prophet Everything he says must be true. He's a blessed man, a blessed woman. Abadan, truth is truth, false is false. Otherwise the Prophet would be living among us. Allah is the truth. And He is the truth. And we only follow the truth. Allah always upholds the truth with His words. And Allah says, Allah is with those who are with the righteous. So my brothers and sisters in Islam, this is the story of Bani Quraiza. Next week, insha'Allah ta'ala, we will talk about what happened next after this battle of Al-Khandaq. And subhanAllah, I cannot, I cannot emphasize how many valuable lessons we are going to learn in the next events that are about to happen. I really advise my brothers and sisters, if you can't make it here, watch it on Facebook Live, on my, my page, um, and, or, or at least listen to it later. I'll, I'll, I'll upload it, inshallah, on, on three pages. Of, uh, when I first started off Facebook, I didn't know how to use it, brothers and sisters. So I've got this, this personal page. I thought that's how you do it. And then I started accepting friends, 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 friends. <laughs> now I didn't know that um, um, this is personal. I had no, wallahi, I had no idea. It's my sister's fault. She didn't tell me. So I started accepting friends. I thought that's how you do it. You've got to accept people so they can see your stuff. And then I realized the personal page, so I made it public. And then I opened up another one, a more public, public one, okay, official one. So now I've got two. It's just mayhem for me. And now I've got another one. Um, I'm not, I'm not, it's not mine, but it's called uh, Powerful Reminders. And it's got Mufti Meng's face on there. So a sister made it. And uh, I, uh, she allows me to, to post on there anything. So I'll have these lectures also on there, inshallah. So brothers and sisters, please stay tuned next week's very valuable lessons. I really urge you to, to try and learn from them. And thank you for listening.